Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 61. Last week, I finally wrapped up the saga of Antony, Cleopatra, and their untimely dealings with Octavian. With his final victory and the dispatching of the last Ptolemaic rulers of Egypt, Octavian brought the country fully under Roman control. About the same time, he would become the Emperor of Rome and adopt the name Caesar Augustus. He would then install a series of prefects as the governors of Egypt. They were tasked with maintaining control of the country, securing its borders, and in a few cases, territorial expansion. I wrapped up that episode with the rule of the prefect Gaius Petronius, who served between 24 and 22 BC. This week, I would normally cover the history of Egypt during his successor's reigns, but quite honestly, little is known about the prefects who ruled Egypt between 22 BC and 15 AD. And remember, I'm only covering the history of Egypt up until Jesus and his earthly parents ended their exile in that country. So, I'll begin this episode working through what is actually known about the timing of that event, meaning their exile, and then spend the remainder of the time with an overview of what the country was like then. And with that, let's get started. In the beginning of the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 2, so in the very beginning of the second half of the Bible, we're told of the events that led to the new family's exile from their homeland. Beginning in verse 13, and from the New Revised Standard Version. Now after they had left, and they are the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. End quote. I'll skip the next couple of verses as they tell of Herod massacring the infant boys in and around Bethlehem. Picking up again in verse 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene." And one thing to note, as this exile has actually made it into the American media of late, there's been one thing that that very story, at least the versions I've seen, has left out. And remember, I have no intent for any sort of a political discussion. Joseph, Mary, and the infant Jesus 
never left Roman-controlled territory. They left Judea, which was governed by the client king Herod, a client king of Rome, and they went to Egypt, which was governed by a Roman prefect at the time, likely one named Gaius Torrenus. But the both of them answered to Rome. Now to be clear, the two districts were very independent of each other. But the whole time, Jesus' earthly family remained in Roman-controlled territory. Stepping down from my box, that no longer contains soap. We can see that Joseph, following the angel who was relaying God's instructions, kept the family in Egypt until Herod died. And while the text doesn't explicitly say that Herod was the same as Herod the Great, there is a clue. And that's that his successor was his son, Archelaus. In the external history, meaning outside of the Bible, he is known as Herod Archelaus. And that little mention gives us a point in time, or at least a range. Herod Archelaus reigned beginning in 4 BC, but this could have been as a co-regent or a sub-regent. The traditional date for the great's death has been 1 BC, but it could have been as early as 4 BC. Not that the exact timing matters too much, but it does give me a roundabout place to stop the history of Egypt. Before moving on, a little tidbit about how Herod the Great did meet his end. He died in Jericho after what's thought to have been an excruciatingly painful and deteriorating illness. The exact disease, or its causes, though, is unknown. History, especially early history, labeled it as Herod's evil. And when your time is up, and speaking only for myself, I don't have any desire for the cause to be something historically named after me, followed by the word evil. That can't be good. Josephus, the 1st century AD Roman Jewish scholar, claimed that the pain of his illness was so bad that Herod attempted to kill himself by stabbing. But the attempt was prevented by his cousin. And keep in mind that to Josephus, unlike many of his previous writings that I've covered, this wasn't especially old news to him. Less than a century old. Later writers, some over ten centuries later, would claim that Herod's self-inflicted stab wounds were successful in proving mortal. Either way, Herod was dead, and God instructed Joseph to bring his family back to Roman-controlled Judea, or at least to the Levant. And we, or maybe it's just me, but I'm left wondering what Egypt was like when the family was there. We know that Alexandria was the capital, and its famed and legendary lighthouse still stood. It would remain standing there for another 1,000 plus years. The pyramids were there, as was the Sphinx. The Nile flooded and receded, and many other historic monuments that we actually can lay our own eyes on were there too. But the family weren't tourists and we don't know if they actually saw any of this, as it's not mentioned in the text. In fact, they may not have even made it as far as the Nile. But of everything I listed, 
it's most likely that they did witness the seasonal cycles of that great river. Of course, there's more to the country than the river and its structures. As you could guess, and as we learned way back in the beginning of Exodus, Egypt was where grain was grown, and Egypt would serve Rome as a significant producer of grain for the empire. Its economy was also very well developed and prospered not just from agriculture, but also from trade. Which makes sense. It was the gateway from the Middle East and across the Mediterranean to the African continent, meaning, at least at that time, Upper Egypt and Cush slash Nubia. The Roman province of Egypt was by far the wealthiest of all its provinces, with Alexandria being the Roman Empire's largest port and its second largest city, hence why Augustus wanted to keep it on a tight leash. And he had territorial aspirations for the province. Now, I failed to mention in the last episode that the first prefect of Egypt, Gaius Cornelius Gallus, brought Upper Egypt under Roman control and established a protectorate over the southern frontier district, which had been abandoned by the later Ptolemies. Of course, he did this with the backing of the Roman legions, a force that the Ptolemaic rulers did not have. The legions would come in handy when the emperor Claudius ruled, and they gained control over the Red Sea coast. But that wouldn't be for another 70 or so years. Which is a bit boggling. How did Rome not gain control over those ports for so long? To me, it indicates they weren't looking to expand trade in that direction. But once they did get it under control, Roman trade with India followed shortly afterwards. About the same time, so around 70 AD, after the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, Alexandria became the center of Jewish religion and culture. Essentially, the Jewish people were scattered, and many lived in Egypt, in exile. Again. But I'm well ahead of myself. Backing up a bit, the third prefect, Gaius Petronius, cleared the reeded-up irrigation canals. This had the expected effect of expanding agricultural production. Grain that would be produced throughout the length of the Nile, in its fertile floodplain, grain that was mostly shipped downriver to the capital of Alexandria, then via the port in the same city to various other parts of the empire, the Roman Empire. A great deal of the grain ended up in Rome itself, and because of this, Rome needed Egypt for the food, for the treasures, and for the tax base, which I'll get to in a minute. But as it had with Cleopatra, there was the threat that Egypt could rebel, and if it did, Rome would lose much of its much-needed food supply. So, Rome did what Rome did. Security was managed through three Roman legions being positioned in Egypt, and a legion was typically about 5,000 soldiers, well-trained, well-disciplined, well-fed, and well-armed. Infantry, cavalry, support troops. All of this 
very expensive, but a formidable force. About 15,000 to keep the Egyptians in line. Now, we also know that early in the empire's control of Egypt, most of the troops stationed there were native Greeks and Egyptians, and even soldiers who were formerly part of the now disbanded Ptolemaic army. But they were loyal to Rome, as after being honorably discharged, they could be granted Roman citizenship. I'll get to why citizenship was important in a minute. There was also the Roman navy that could be relatively quickly dispatched to whichever hotspot it was needed. In Egypt at this time, the populace, perhaps due to a formed distaste for the recent troubles, did not rebel. Well, not much. So, instead, the military would focus more on territorial expansion, like I dove into in the last episode. When Rome took over the Ptolemaic governing structure in Egypt, of course they made many changes. First, they strengthened the standing of the Greeks and therefore directly promoted Hellenism against Egyptian influences. The Romans, to a certain degree, saw the Greeks as brothers, as they shared a common culture to the point that by now the two were exceedingly intertwined. Egyptian culture, to the both of them, was inferior and therefore subordinate. In their new system, some of the previous offices and titles for the office holders that were in place under Greek Ptolemaic rule were kept. Others were changed to more appropriate Roman titles and functions, while other governmental jobs were completely scrapped and replaced with the Roman ideal. But there was one overall driving goal. The Romans wanted to maximize tax revenue at the greatest efficiency. That was their primary goal for all of their territories. Be self-sufficient and send your taxes to Rome. Support our lifestyle. Otherwise, your rulers can do as they see fit. But don't get too carried away, like rebelling. We'll squash that. Be good subjects. In Egypt, the situation presented itself as a government run by the previously mentioned prefects. His duties combined responsibility for military security through the command of the legions and cohorts. Also, he was tasked with the organization of the administrative government, meaning finance and taxation. Finally, he was responsible for the administration of justice. No separation of powers necessary. So about the tax system, as it was perhaps the most comprehensive economic change the Romans put into place. Land was taxed in both cash and by agricultural production. There were also taxes on almost every kind of transaction. If 5% would appear too small, the people were thankful the Romans didn't take it all. If you drove a wagon, they taxed the road. If you tried to sit, they taxed your seat. If you got too cold, they taxed the heat. If you took a walk, they taxed your feet. Wait, no, that wasn't the Romans. That was the Beatles. Paraphrased. But the Romans were very similar. Except in Egypt, you didn't have to tax the heat. But if they had had air conditioners, 
they would have been taxed too. There were also customs duties, property taxes, all sorts of commerce taxes, and so many others, all collected by appointed governmental officials. Running an empire isn't cheap. Neither is having the most powerful military in the world. And here we sit, 2,000 years later. Things change. Things remain. Insert non-political comment. Or not. As you probably could have correctly guessed, the Egyptian populace didn't exactly embrace the Roman taxation scheme. But not everything Roman was counter to our modern Western world. The Roman government actively encouraged the privatization of land, along with an increase of private enterprise in manufacturing, commerce, and trade. But don't be confused. Not all of the productive land was in private hands. The poorer people, especially those engaged in agricultural production, tended to rent their land from the government, or in other cases, as tenant farmers of privately held land. And this was a tenuous existence, as the rent was due regardless of production. And the land rent tended to be really high, so even in a good productive year, you would still merely eke out a meager existence. So, a drought could not only leave you hungry, but also broke. Completely drachmaless. Actually, drachmas were Greek. Roman money was known as denarii. So, you could be completely denarii-less. Either way, your livelihood, and your life really, was at the mercy of the Nile and your landlord. Literally, a land lord. As for trade, the Egyptians had been mastering that art for millennia, and having the Romans involved managed to increase the complexity of trade, and directed it more towards a monetary system as opposed to the previous traditional barter system. As the use of money increased, so did trade within villages, between villages, and of course on an international scale, to the point that an ancient form of industry developed. Not like we envision it though. And keep in mind that Joseph was a carpenter. In that time and place, he would have produced his goods as part of what would have been considered a home industry and sold it for money, denarii, Money that would have been used to buy the food they needed but were not completely engaged in the practice of producing. In our modern economic system, we tend to use the phrase specialization of labor. And being a carpenter was a specialized business made easier through the use of money. Which gets me to the social structure in the society. To the Romans, the people living in Egypt were Egyptians, even those of Greek origin. To them, there weren't really Ptolemaic Egyptians, and those of Greek heritage didn't appreciate being lumped in with the natives. But defeat has its consequences, and this was one of many. Greek citizens, though, were a different matter. Adding a layer of complication was the large Jewish community, which tended to identify more with the Greeks than with the natives. But they were also segregated, 
from both the Greeks and the natives. Despite all of this, the Romans didn't come in and attempt to upend everything. They kept the society structured as it had been. Remember, their goals were taxes and agriculture. As long as they got those two things, the country would be left alone, for the most part. When Rome took over Egypt, it also introduced a system of compulsory public service, but not really mandatory, as if you had the means, you could simply buy your way out of it. Having said that, they did institute what is best described as a caste system. Overall, this was organized based on ethnicity in place of residence. At the top were Roman citizens, of course. Next were Greek citizens who lived in one of the Greek cities. And remember, these were Greek citizens, not people of Greek ethnicity. At the bottom end of the spectrum were the native Egyptians. City dwellers were held in higher esteem than country folk, and more wealth meant higher status. And embedded in all of this was a lack of upward mobility. You were born into, lived, then died in whatever strata your parents and their parents occupied. These different groups had different rates of taxation based on their social class. Greeks were exempt from the poll tax, while Hellenized inhabitants along with the Roman citizens in the Greek-based cities were taxed at a lower rate than the native Egyptians, who paid the full poll tax. No such thing as equal protection under the law. But there was one method to move up, which I very briefly touched on earlier, and that was the military. Officially, only Roman citizens could serve in the legions, but many Greeks managed to get in. Others, including the lowly native Egyptians, could join the auxiliary forces and attain citizenship upon an honorable discharge. Many, many episodes ago, so many I don't remember, but I did cover how Egypt was administratively organized into units known as gnomes, not the elven creatures, think administrative districts. This organization persisted throughout the era of Roman control, up even through the 4th century AD. In the particular gnome where a person resided, had a great deal of influence over their social standing. Once again, Roman citizens at the top, Greeks next, and native Egyptians at the bottom, just below the Hebrews. Of course, the city of Alexandria, being both the capital, the largest port, and founded by the greatest Greek, Alexander, was at the top of the list of cities. But not only were they considered at the top of the caste, but this position gave them certain privileges. I've already mentioned the lower poll tax. Alexandrians also paid the lowest land tax, and residents of the city were the only people in the country that could apply for Roman citizenship outside of the military. This non-military path towards citizenship, though, was limited to the residents of Alexandria, whose parents had also been residents of the city. No newcomers allowed. There was something else, too. If a native Egyptian desired to become a Roman citizen, he would first have to become an Alexandrian citizen. 
Certainly, certain rights and privileges were reserved for Alexandrians. Overall, Greek cities were allowed to be more self-governing than non-Greek cities. And I'm not quite done with privileges. Only Greek and Roman citizens were allowed into gymnasiums. As for the Greeks, though, they had to prove that their parents had been members of the gymnasium at the time from the turn of B.C. to A.D. Now, about these gyms, they weren't, of course, what we think of as gymnasiums. Now, they did include athletic training, but they were also the site of general education and even eventually included the legendary Roman baths. And there was a certain logic to the Romans allowing this, along with giving special rights to the Greeks. Rome needed the province to be self-sufficient, and part of this self-sufficiency was self-governance. The Greeks were seen as a steadying force that could provide both municipal officers and well-educated administrators. Finally, the special rights based on your caste extended to the judiciary. Actually, allow me to retract the derivative of the word judicial, as that may make it sound fairer than it really was. Instead, let's just say that the higher up you were in the social strata, the less you were punished. Native Egyptians could be publicly whipped as punishment, while Roman citizens for the same offense, while their punishment was capped at being beaten with a rod. To me, they both seem rather bad. But then again, punishment isn't supposed to be comfortable. Having said that, the word cruel pops into my modern thoughts. Unfortunately cruel, but probably not unusual. Overall, the Greek residents were treated as an ally, while the native Egyptians were seen as a conquered race, and the Hebrews were somewhere in between. And that, after 51 episodes, so nearly a year, if you're listening live. Anyway, that is the history of ancient Egypt, from the prehistoric period to the turn of BC to AD. About 22 hours of me talking and you listening, and an estimated 180,000 words. I warned you in the beginning that it would take a while, and it did, longer than even I thought it would. Join me next week when I'll summarize those thousands of years of history in an episode or two. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.